You're listening to You Play A What, a podcast by a musician for musicians. My name is Vincent and I play the euphonium. Join me as I sit down with successful musicians to talk about their specialization, inspirations, and career developments. Hello, and thank you for tuning in to episode 62 of You Play A What. I hope all of you are well. Well, you know, it has been an interesting journey looking back at my career development. I feel like I have gone through different phases that allowed me to have a better understanding towards how being a musician is more than being proficient in our craft. Certainly as freelancers, we are also our own manager. Sometimes we are our business or we are the face of our business. And this is not just how well we do our job, but also who we are as a person. Uh, We are accountable for our work and our career you know, making sure that we don't double book ourselves and things like that. Some very, very basic uh, fundamental rules to being a freelancer. We can't really say the same when it comes to running an arts organization, when your actions and decisions will impact so many more people because we can't just turn down certain gigs just because we feel like it is not something that we like to do. But for the general sustainability of the group, sometimes we have to just accept these trade-offs and do things that perhaps we are not very passionate about but helps with the sustainability of the group. Uh, Evidently, we have seen many changes made to policies by orchestras around the world due to the lack of activity. And I must say that this is an area of work that I'm not particularly familiar with. So on this episode, I sat down with Mervyn Bing, chairman of ReSound Collective, to talk about his musical journey and his involvement in the music scene in Singapore and how he tries to impact the development of the music scene here. We spoke about how he navigates objectivity versus subjectivity in writing music reviews, the origin story of ReSound Collective, the challenges of introducing chamber works to the wider audience, breaking ground at the height of Circuit Breaker with his knowledge of technology, music patronage, and the recent creation of the OKK Win Prize at the Yong Suto Conservatory of Music, and I think you'll be very surprised to find out about the first brass instrument Mervyn played. I certainly was when he shared this little piece of fun fact with me. But enough from me now. Please enjoy this episode of You Play A What with Mervyn. My guest today is Mervyn Bing. I'll be hard-pressed to find someone who is more passionate about music than my guest today. Mervyn is the chairman of Resound Collective, an arts charity organization that promotes chamber music in all its glory. Although he's not a practitioner, Mervyn has found ways to continuously contribute and impact the development of the music scene here in Singapore. He's a classical music reviewer for The Straits Time and recently started the Ong Kim Kiet Win Prize at the Yong Sudo Conservatory of Music. 
The prize recognizes uh, year two or three Goodwin or Brass students who is a strong performer with broad-based engagement in the wider landscape and supports them in pursuing a career development project of their own. I'm looking forward to learning the other facets of music industry. So welcome to the show, Mervyn. How are you doing today? Thanks very much, Vincent. Uh, I'm doing well. Great. Uh, thank you so much for taking time out to come to the show and chatting with me. I think we've got plenty to cover today. And certainly there are, there are topics that I'm particularly interested in when it comes to, say, the governance of an organization and how this crazy sort of last two years has been for you as someone that is leading an arts organization. But I thought where we'll start off is sort of your role as a music reviewer. And if I could just ask you a couple of things about that, because I find that quite fascinating in a way that if I can draw this analogy, right? If I am, say, a person that really hates pineapple on pizza and I have to go into an Italian restaurant and all they serve me is pineapple on pizza, uh, it's going to be hard for me to write a good review or a positive review for that. So is there any struggles between your own personal taste of classical music and the objectivity of, say, the group is trying to achieve in the performance? Well, you're starting with a tough one right off, right? <laughs> I think that for me, if the concert is really too far off my comfort zone, then the best, best thing I can do is just to opt not to review it or to you know, recommend somebody else to do the review. But, right. but in any concert, in any normal season, there would be concerts which you would consider your favorites and some which you are a little bit wary of. And I guess the objective I carry with me into a review is to reflect my responses as well as to try to be objective as far as you can be objective in something like uh, performance uh, mm. in reflecting how that concert was presented. So if it's music which is not my favorite genre, I, I, I have to discount it in the sense that I know it may not uh, move me as much or may not bring as much response as it would some other genre, but mm. I do try to compensate for that. Uh, otherwise, it would not right. be fair because otherwise it would be just my biased uh, review of a concert. Mm. On right. the other hand, I think people who have read my reviews over time do know that uh, I try to reflect my response to what I feel at a concert. And to me, that's important. It's not just a report. It's not just an analysis. It's really uh, one man's view of how he felt the concert went and how he responded to the concert. Right. Okay. And are there particular things that you listen out for in, in a concert? Of course, you have um, uh, plenty of knowledge with uh, the, the range of or the repertoire in the classical music genre, right? Of course, in that there's so many different categories. But how would you categorize, say, a performance that you enjoy? Well, actually, there are things I don't particularly look out for. Uh, right. I don't particularly look out for the performer who can 
deliver the fastest notes or make the fewest mistakes. I think, of course, it affects the enjoyment of the concert. And it also is a reflection on that performer's technical abilities. But uh, And you do have to report on it, for sure. Mm. But it's really how the communication affects you, how the performer presents uh, his musical ideas, his or her musical ideas, maybe faithfulness to the composer's writing, and mm. the it's it's really an emotional response. No matter how technically familiar you are with the music or the instrument, uh, I think one has to present a review and critique, which. It's meaningful to the general reader. I think in Singapore, mm. we don't have such specialist readership as you might see in Europe. So in Europe, uh, I think the critics know that if they're writing in, for example, gramophone, then they are writing to super knowledgeable audiences. Uh, whereas yep. if they're writing even in a telegraph, or The Guardian, the people reading it are probably very knowledgeable. Uh, mm. In some ways, I feel that what we write, and I'm talking Tao Liang, myself, and other reviewers, what we write is a matter of national record. It's a record of a significant cultural event having taken place in Singapore and uh, our response to that event. Mm. Okay. Right. So it also kind of changes the way you write, right? You can't get into too much technicalities. and. Yes. I mean, I, I write essentially as somebody who enjoys listening, has listened a lot rather than somebody who's studied a lot, uh, which I actually haven't. I mean, I've read a lot. I've listened a lot over the years, but I'm not a particularly studious music musician or musicologist. Right. I mean, to be honest, it's <laughs> some sometimes uh, like for myself when you are constantly just practicing. Actually, we don't listen that much. We either just go for rehearsals. Of course, if we have a a big concert to prepare, we listen to part of the repertoire, and we we don't probably spend as much time sitting there to just like enjoy the music uh, as someone like you, I would say, who, who's really, really interested and passionate about this this genre, right? Mm-hmm. Or that could be just me, not being studious no, in that, my that, way. That's, prob- <laughs> that's probably me and probably reflects uh, that I've never been somebody who spent hours and hours on my instrument. I was just too lazy, <laughs> uh, not motivated enough or not well-trained enough. I mean, in my days, if you were learning a brass instrument, you'd barely have any proper instruction as you would see today so we just muddled along and we enjoyed it and that's the reason we did it Uh, whereas today i think our younger music students have an incredible access to music instruction absolutely but uh, one worries whether uh, that is sometimes at the expense of uh, forgetting that it's the enjoyment that counts. Mm. Yeah, I guess we, we at the end of the day, we, we pick our our battles that we, we choose to fight, right? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And of course, 
speaking to you, we have to talk about Resound Collective, this brainchild of yours and has come to fruition and over the years has been doing so much work and contributing many concerts and just showing audiences the possibilities of like chamber orchestras and uh, small ensembles. So let's do like a short origin story or if that's going to be short, right? Yeah, sure. So sure. yeah, how, how did it all start? And I, then I think why the name? There's yeah. very little magic to it. I mean, all along, even when I was uh, involved in an amateur chamber group, uh, there were people within our group who were very highly trained in music teachers, professionally trained. And I think uh, one of the things you'd always hear every now and again would be, oh, ah, when is Singapore ever going to have its own proper chamber orchestra, proper meaning a professional chamber orchestra? And uh, I think I've heard that for at least 15, 20 years. But if you looked at the landscape in those days, the numbers of professionally trained musicians who we could get together to form a chamber orchestra was relatively small. So over the years, I've been involved in uh, music education, SNYO, uh, the Yong Suto Conservatory. And after about 10 years at YST and seeing the various batches of students graduate uh, and seeing them on stage as a reviewer, I started to wonder, has the time arrived that we have this critical mass of musicians? And also, what do the graduates do after they, uh, they graduate with their degrees or even more so after they come back from postgraduate studies? I mean, if they don't play regularly, in other words, if they don't opt in a, to a, for a career in SSO, for example, then some of them really don't perform as much as ideally. Uh, they play in gigs, but I do know that the gigs are taken as gigs. I mean, they are paid engagements. They don't have particularly large number of rehearsals and essentially it's an opportunity to get some side money to play with interesting people but uh, the musical demands aren't super high so with that sort of thinking I got together and it, this is certainly not just myself I got together with some musicians some of whom were conductors also and we talked about this idea of trying to find out whether there was enough critical mass for a chamber group. And we even had a, something like a, what you would call an internet uh, cafe experience. We got everybody together in a cafe, which was known to be a place where people sit down and talk about the next great uh, internet venture. Mm. And we got about 30 musicians and, told them what was on our minds, that we wanted to set up a collective for chamber orchestra and small ensembles. And there was good response. But even then, with that good response, we weren't sure, would there be enough critical mass? Would this last, you know, starting an orchestra in Singapore is notoriously difficult. 
Absolutely. Even with uh, community groups, we've seen them come and go. It's tough. Uh, when you do it professionally, and our model was that if we wanted to have an orchestra, then we would pay the musicians for their rehearsals as well as performance. And if you just count 25 musicians or 30 musicians times X rehearsals, mm-hmm. uh, that's a lot of money per concert. Yeah, it's a hefty sum. Yeah, definitely. It, it is. Yeah. And right. ticket sales would never, ever uh, support you. You'd have to have sufficient patronage and donations and government support for it to happen. But we decided that, uh, yes, there seemed to be a chance that there were enough musicians because it all starts with the musicians. If you don't have enough core musicians, you won't make it. And I think at the time we discussed this, around 2015, uh, it was getting clear that there would be enough. Mm, Whether they would be motivated enough, whether we could get enough uh, collaborators to work with them so that they would remain uh, motivated, all that was unknown. But we that's how we started. Mm, Uh, The the name, uh, we actually had uh, a brand consultant work with us because I thought that if we want to start this, we should start correctly. So we mm-hmm. had a strategy session with a brand consultant talking about now oh, what do you stand for? What's important? What do you want your audience to know you for? And as a chamber orchestra, and the first thing we needed to do was figure out for ourselves and with the participants, and the participants included some people who are simply music uh, concert goers. They're not musicians, but people who attend concerts and they said uh, well I guess the difference one of the differences is sound you have a much smaller sound uh, a more transparent sound as a chamber orchestra we also talk about uh, the concert experience which led us to decide well 7.30 in Singapore is not easy it means people who work anywhere away from the city have to rush down to the concert hall so we said, why not go back to 8.15, the original start time of SSO concerts. Right, that 45 right. minutes actually meant a lot for some of our audience because it meant enough time to have a decent dinner before coming mm, to concerts. Absolutely. So things like that, yeah. uh, the fact that we didn't feel that we needed to perform in long entails and bow ties because... Uh, as long as we are professional about it, that's what counts. So we decided that uh, our dress would be without coat and bow tie, mm. but smart right. as a respect to the audience. So all of these things came together. And when we came to the name, there were, of course, many suggestions, but things kept coming back to our sound. It's all about sound. Mm. Yes. And so, well, Resound was a name which came up and stuck. And so Mm. people ask, is it Resound or is it Resound? (laughs) I I don't really care, but it's all about sound. And as long as you know uh, the sound in it and we don't sound like any other orchestra, we we sound consistent, we sound good, that's what's important for us. 
Right, right. And so far over the years, what has been the main challenges when it comes to you know promoting chamber music and small ensemble music to the audiences in Singapore? It's been very interesting. Uh, of course, you start off by contacting friends, you know, uh, music lovers to try to get them to attend. And in the beginning, it was good that Straits Times gave us some publicity in the form of an interview. But uh, what we found was that those who are familiar with the idea of a smaller orchestra, and this actually was uh, mostly people who already list attending SSO concerts or used to attend SSO concerts or have attended concerts overseas. And for them, the idea of a smaller orchestra, uh, often without conductor, was nothing that unusual. Mm. So we actually had a core group of audience who were very comfortable. If you told them, you were doing a program of Mozart and Beethoven or Haydn or an early Schubert, uh, they'd be particularly happy to hear that. And right. they, would, they would turn up without question, uh, which was a little bit of a surprise because we thought there might be a bit of resistance. Uh, I see. Conversely, the resistance which we saw and which we still see today which I find a little bit uncomfortable, a little bit worrying, is that the younger audience, say those between uh, school age and early 40s, actually are a little bit resistant. If you tell them Mozart, mm. they actually think, oh, nice music, but not particularly exciting, which, I mean, I think most of us who are into music uh, think that's that's very wrong. Uh, if Mozart yeah. doesn't sound exciting and interesting, then we as musicians are doing something wrong because it, mm. it, it's some of the most wonderful music in the world. So this is a challenge which continues even to today. Uh, there are members of concert-going audiences who don't feel that Mozart... Haydn, even some Beethoven is as exciting as a Rachmaninoff, a Mahler, mm -hmm. Bruckner. Uh, yeah, the big also, romantic the big, symphonies. The yeah. big stuff. Yeah. And yeah. that's something which we sort of knew was going to be there because Singapore audiences, especially the middle generation, have been brought up on SSO music. And mm. SSO, by its definition, by its nature, has to perform the larger repertoire. Yeah. And that's where mm. we come in. Mm. Exactly. There, there, is a, there is a niche and there's a gap there yeah. to present these works. Yeah. Yeah. In its, in, and in, in a way, it's a much more, like you said, transparent and a, a delicate and much more intimate setting, right? With a chamber orchestra performing. And yet, yeah, it the is works by there. no means contradictory because. Uh, even in our discussion, my discussions with the, the principal conductor of SSO, uh, Hans Graf, he says what you're doing is absolutely complementary because 
what we do, if we do Mozart and early Beethoven and early romantic music right, it can only help SSO because that's the basis of the later music that they play. It's completely complementary uh, and actually completely natural if you were, say, uh, living in Europe because there, there are chamber, wonderful chamber orchestras and they play music side by side with the bigger orchestras. Yeah, absolutely. And now, for you personally, how did this strong passion and interest for, for classical music develop over time? <laughs> and how, how did it stick to you throughout all this, uh, you well, know, your, your life, basically? Like so many other kids, I was taught the piano early. Uh, rumor has it I started around four or five. <laughs> rumor has it, right? Um, okay. Had a terrible, terrible teacher who literally kicked me out. Uh, tough left. Plenty of tough left. Well, actually, just a bad teacher. Just a, <laughs> just, just a bad okay. teacher because the earlier teachers right. I had uh, were great. It's only this final teacher I had this was a miserable, terrible teacher. I continued mm. the violin for a little bit until my teacher so, uh, left teaching because uh, it was my brother. And my, when my brother started his career, he had to stop teaching me. Uh, so I, uh. I ended the violin around sec one, which just happened to be the time I joined the school, one of the school bands. And I was given what was reputed to be the easiest brass instrument to start <laughs> with. He laughs. You laugh because you know what I'm leading to. So I was, yeah, I was given the euphonium. Hey, and, uh, right. Oh, then. So yeah. euphonium was my instrument for a number of years. Mm. Uh, and I enjoyed it without doubt. I even played uh, the promenade and pictures of at an exhibition, I played the solo right. on the recording for the school or school band, but it was boring. I mean, in the <laughs> end, there are only that many pieces you can play with mm. the euphonium, and you can't play in the orchestra, the string of yeah. the full orchestra. So uh, I begged to borrow the horn and went to dig up music in the National Library and picked mm. it up myself. In fact, right. my first music on the horn was literally what the, I could find in the National Library. So the first music on the horn was a Beethoven sonata mm. and a Haydn concerto. Right. Uh, which sounds and, ridiculous, but that's what I started with. Yeah. And speaking of like rumors having it right, is it true that you're also a little bit more empathetic towards home players just because that you've uh, been on the instrument? Nah, I'm totally... Uh, <laughs> Actually, I think that people who have worked with me, whether it's in the amateur music group or in Resound, probably find it... find that I'm actually a lot more empathetic to the winds. I think once you learn an, a wind instrument, uh, you are aware of what happens when you are at the back row of, a, of an orchestra. 
Right. Uh, when sometimes the conductor or the leader doesn't pay as much attention to you, and or, or they give you the hand, right? Yep. So it's a bit, a bit lesser. Yep. Don't want to hear you when, as much. When actually, yeah. most of the time, I'd say, <laughs> "Why don't you guys play out?" Okay. But the fact that I did do enough violin to understand uh, what string playing is about uh, was a great benefit. So I, I guess I'm one of those people uh, who had enough understanding of both string and wind. And I think that that makes a difference. Yeah. And since then, of course, professionally, away from music, you've gone into different industries. And how has that kind of informed the way you thought about music or how music can be presented? Uh, or has that, or do you draw a line very clearly? Well, actually, there's always been a parallel life. I mean, uh, music was extremely important. I mean, in school days, there were great opportunities like, you know, doing a band tour and then doing a concert tour with the youth orchestra. All those things were like undreamt of you to be so lucky to have these opportunities. Uh, probably the most important experiences was during national service when suddenly out of the blue, uh, I got an invitation from the then ECA Center run by MOE uh, to apply for an Asian youth music camp. This is the predecessor to AYO, Asian Youth Orchestra. And, wow, okay. Uh, this was during national service. So I was asked to, hey, you've played in the youth orchestra. Why don't you uh, audition to represent Singapore, the Asian youth music camp, where there'll be musicians from all over the world, from Korea, Australia, Taiwan, everywhere in Asia. And the particular camp I auditioned for uh, would have Chu Hui back oh, in wow. Singapore for the first time for many, okay. many years before SSO. And Chu mm. Hui was going to conduct the program and this camp was going to be in Singapore. Uh, I see. So I looked at it and I, I doubted I had any uh, chance to get into it. But uh, and then I said, I'm in national service, what will happen? Then they said that, uh, oh, if you're selected for this, you'll be considered to be representing Singapore. And so you get two weeks of unrecorded leave from national service. And I said, okay, tell me where the audition is. <laughs> of course, uh, I mean, right. of course I will turn up. And that was probably the most important experience because there I interacted with musicians who were way above me in training and experience. Uh, in fact, my horn section leader, uh, well, I think we enjoyed playing with each other, but she was so shocked with the state of my training that a few weeks later, she sent a whole stack of horn books and techniques, which I, I have to thank her forever for because she was really my very first teacher because prior to that, I was a totally uneducated horn player. Right. So it's sort of like exploring the the world of home playing on your own, right? Yeah. Just being yeah, I mean, self-taught. To think that I was playing Beethoven 7 without having had literally a day of 
instruction on a horn, that's just mind-boggling. Right, yeah. right. Moving forward to the, the last two years or so, of course, as someone that's leading uh, an arts organization like ReSound, it's been challenging, isn't it, to... It, yeah. for the fluidity and, yeah. and things like that. I think that's yeah. a bit of an understatement. Uh, <laughs> we had actually been growing very quickly, almost faster than we, any of us had expected to, to the point yeah. that we were doing like six concerts a year. And we had decided that strategically we should set up a string quartet so that we mm. would have a, a much more permanent set of four players who would also... Uh, be driving our outreach to schools and to community. So plans were in, we had hired, uh, and here we're talking about actually hiring as employees the four musicians in the quartet. They had worked towards their launch on 1st February 2020. Mm. And as we were approaching the launch already, there were some uh, signals uh, a few audience had dropped out of the concert because there was news of a virus coming right. around. Uh, after their debut concert in February, they had a season with Wild Rice, importance of being earnest. And during that season, there were constantly discussions on whether a particular show would be cancelled because a sponsor had pulled out so for a particular concert and it ended a few days earlier than schedule, but shortly after right. that, there was a full lockdown. Yeah. And we were, of course, very badly affected. Through the year, uh, I believe that we, and we're talking about through the 12-month period for mm. our fiscal year, we cancelled 10 performances. Wow. Yes. Okay. And Wow. Uh, the first of them was on 1st April, then 3rd April, then 4th April. So a whole series of concerts were cancelled. Uh, but for the quartet, there was an additional problem in that here we have a very young quartet who suddenly cannot even meet. They are not even mm. allowed to physically meet. And that's where we sort of uh, did a little bit of a turnaround. Uh, I have technical background, and so together with one of my friends, we set up a way for musicians to play with microphones and headphones, like what we are doing, but both mm -hmm. play and rehearse with each other in real time. And mm. they did that. They even performed a concert where all four of them were at home. Yeah. And yet they somehow managed to play together. And... Mm. That was so unique, what we did, that uh, BBC Music Magazine picked it up and right. asked for us to for us for an interview the day after our concert and featured us on the next available issue of BBC right. Music Magazine. To be honest, it, it is quite a feat at, at that point of time to have this ability to play remotely, rehearse live and have everything with almost no latency. There is latency, right. unfortunately. Yeah. So these uh, four musicians literally had to force themselves to learn how to listen to the earphones and not to the instrument. It's as I if see. you are you're bowing an instrument which is about 40 feet away from you. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> then after that, we said, okay, that's that was fun. It was painful, but it was fun. So <laughs> we love the sort of crazy things in a way. And I felt that you know our poor musicians, okay, they've seen the quartet play. What if we could get the orchestra to play? Uh, and we looked at the rules. The rules said you could have like eight music people in a room. Uh, with special permission, you could get wind players in a room. And mm-hmm. we said, okay, what if we put them in four rooms? Because four times eight is 24. And that will yeah. get you a Mozart. Yep. And we did that. We hired a venue which had four rooms big enough to be socially distanced. Uh, we worked around the acoustics and we bought, we literally purchased like 20 sets of headphones, loaned 20 microphones and mm. a big mixer and everything. And we did which something which probably is a world's first. Uh, yeah. we, we broadcast a live symphony concert from four, one, two, three, four physically separated rooms. Mm. And yeah. I mean, in this case, for the Mozart, we had bassoons in one little room, husband and wife, and clarinet in another room. And if you know the Mozart, uh, there's a lot of passing of the music between clarinet and bassoon and clarinet, but they did it wonderfully. And it was mm-hmm. a great experience because it, it sort of told the musicians and told the world that, uh, no, we, we still want to play together no matter what the restrictions mm-hmm. are. Right. And do you think it's your understanding of tech that made you realize that there is this possibility of making these two projects happen? Oh, absolutely. I mean, once you're deeply into tech and you know that, uh, for example, in Singapore, you have actually a wonderful national network. Uh, You still have to overcome latency, but... uh, other people also have this problem and they've been working on it. So we use open soft, open source software. Uh, we use our imaginations. We talk to other tech people who gave good suggestions. I got an ex-colleague working with me on this project. So yes, the tech background was very important, but also very important is the fact that we are also musicians, whether amateur musicians or professional. As musicians, we understand what the musicians go through. And mm. putting that together was probably what helped us uh, come to yeah. these uh, weird and wonderful solutions. Lovely. And it's like, yeah, this, I think it's your, your perfect sort of position in, in, and the knowledge in tech and music that allowed like this pro, these two projects Right. Oh, it's, I, I just find that it's... Uh, I, I did tune in for, for the premiere for for both the shows. And yeah, it was it was quite incredible because it was a time where really physical rehearsals could not happen. And, and, and here you have a group that is like pushing for, you know, this sort of um, larger scale performance to still be able to be performed. And in a way, not losing that that spontaneous element of live music making. Yes. I mean, even after the two performances, I think 
some of the audience was wondering how did we do it? Was there a click track? Who was beat? <laughs> who was doing the beats? But uh, I think only gradually that some of them understand that what we were doing was quite different. I mean, mm. it may look the same. You may see the same mosaic on the screen when you see different musicians playing together, but uh, fundamentally, it was very different. And yeah. the act of performing live, we could we could feel what the audience was, how the audience was reacting. I think we, it's not, uh, even though you, you don't see them, you don't hear them, but you, you know that there's an audience and you, you do different things because there's an audience. A couple of months after that, or earlier this year, you did program this uh, concert for a wind quintet and or a couple of uh, uh, wind and string quartet, these sort of different quintets mm -hmm. and quartets uh, concert mm -hmm. called, I think it's the, the Grand Tour for Wind. Is yes. That, maybe that, that's the title. Yes. Yeah. So uh, talk us through that decision to be like, well, we're going to have some unmasked musicians on stage now and we're just going to try to push for this. Well, this was there any this resistance? This was actually a bit of, uh, very much an offshoot from the Mozart where we had the orchestra in four rooms because uh, the room with the winds, uh, obviously they enjoyed themselves very much playing together. Uh, we knew that the lifting of restrictions was going to be uh, gradual, starting with smaller numbers. And you know, I played my fair share of wind quintet music. And so it wasn't that difficult or such a brilliant idea to come up with. It's, if you have wind musician, good wind musicians who enjoy playing with each other, and if you have concert halls which only allow a small number of players, it's either the string quartet or if you're a wind player, it's the wind quintet. So yeah. the main idea was to use the opportunity to allow the winds to do something on their own and to supplement mm -hmm. the wind quintet music with some uh, like the oboe quartet, the clarinet quintet from Brahms. Yeah. Yes. And uh, of course, uh, speaking of the uh, clarinet quintet, the Brahms clarinet quintet performed uh, by Ralph Lim yeah. and the Concordia Quartet, uh, we see them teaming up again in an upcoming concert that is going to happen in a couple of weeks' time. Yes. And uh, they are doing, I, I believe, uh, from from my research, a particular piece, a piece that you enjoy quite well. And uh, maybe tell us a little bit more about this uh, Mozart quintet and what it means to you and why you enjoy this piece well, I think, uh, as much as you do. I think if you've been to music camps and I've been to my fair share, uh, one of the things which happens in a music camp is the chamber music making between players and uh, I was exposed to the, Mo the actually the Mozart oboe quartet with an Australian, a young Australian oboes and some Asian strings and uh, that blew my mind. I mean, to hear the Mozart oboe quartet as a young man for the first time and to hear it played in the music camp by maybe some of the best musicians in Asia of your generation was just mind-blowing. And it never left me. 
And some years later, I heard the clarinet quintet of all places on the TV series MASH. And uh, Colonel Winchester loved his loved his uh, classical music. He got a Korean bunch of musicians to learn to play his favorite chamber music, the clarinet quintet by Mozart. And it stuck with me. Uh, it's a particularly wonderful piece of music in that every movement shows off certain elements of the instrument, the clarinet, and yet it's complete chamber music. It's not music for clarinet with a string quartet. It is mm. chamber music for a quintet, which it consists of a clarinet and four string musicians, and everybody plays his part in that music. I came to realize after the January concert that many people in many concert goers in Singapore don't get to listen to much of the repertoire besides the symphonic repertoire. Even chamber repertoire is relatively unexplored. And even a very famous piece like the Brahms Quintet, hardly anybody I talked to after the concert said that, oh, it was my fa- it's my favorite piece. I always listen to it. No, it's, the general reaction was, wow, this is the first time I heard this quintet and it's mm. it's mind-blowing. I mean, that movement, that first movement of the Brahms quintet is absolutely mind-blowing. Right. It would have been too yeah. long for performance for this concert because of COVID limitations. We can't do a piece as long, as extended as the Brahms. But to me, the Mozart is every bit as great a chamber work as the Brahms. So that's what led us to this piece. Right, yeah. And of course, all the, the links to the concert where you can get tickets will be provided in the show notes. So if you're interested, be sure to check out the link and then you can get yourself a ticket or two to enjoy the concert. Of course, along with uh, the clarinet quintet, we have the Greek quartet as well, right? Am I right? Yes, there's also the Greek string quartet number one, which... Actually, we've played before. We played it with Kam Ning uh, in right. a full orchestral uh, arrangement. Uh, but this time I we see. do the original string quartet uh, arrangement. Uh, it's another wonderful piece. Both of them have soaring melodies, uh, which leads us to the uh, name of the, the title of the concert. But it's a very different piece. It shows off the instruments. And it's a piece which Grieg decided to, you know, write it in his style. Mm. And yet, it's very accessible, as most Greek music is. So I think it's a very nice compliment to the Mozart clarinet quintet. And I think uh, it's nice to have a concert which... I would guess most attendees would not have heard either work. Mm. Definitely not live. Yeah. Uh, Likely that for many people attending, it's the first time uh, they hear the music. And yet, I am quite sure it's music which they will quite quickly decide it's 
very accessible, very enjoyable. And now, uh, you, you've been so generous with your time and I just have like maybe one parting question sure. before before we finish this uh, interview off. Uh, of course, your role in the the music scene, you have been on boards of like universities. You have been also been you have also been patrons of certain groups, and you're also leading your own organization. When it comes to music patrons, sometimes from from my perspective, certainly as a euphonium player, it, it seems like they are geared towards a particular say type of music. Maybe what what one would deem as maybe conventional Western classical music, or a particular group of instruments, um, mostly maybe violin or piano. Um, do do you think that, uh, um, of course, you can just speak for yourself. But do you think that such things play a part in whether one would decide to to support a group or an event or a person? Oh, definitely. I mean, patronage. One hopes is based on personal affection. So the patron really should be connecting and enjoying that art form so that he or she will then in turn support it. Of course, it would be nice if patrons supported everything fairly evenly, (laughs) uh, gave equally to non-classical as classical, but I think it's quite clear it's uh, jazz, for example, has its own sets of patrons, and I think uh, orchestras have their patrons. Uh, wind groups probably have a more difficult time. Uh, the glamour, the prestige may not be there, but I think uh, there's every reason that they should be supported as strongly as other groups in classical music. Right. And uh, now, with, with you just you know recently contributing or starting the the OKK uh, Win Prize, what what are the hopes that you you hope to see by introducing this award into the Young Pseudo Conservatory? Well, I think it should be clear that first of all, the OKK Prize is primarily driven by my wife because uh, her father was a band teacher. Mm. He happened to be the person who released the French horn out of the um, band store to allow me to try. Wow, okay. uh, Before that, I was strictly the euphonium guy who's not supposed to borrow anything except the euphonium. So uh, he enabled me to get my hands on a, a French horn, which I'm grateful for. But he mm-hmm. was also a prolific uh, wind teacher in, in addition to his normal school duties, teaching English and econ. So uh, it's in honor of what he's done. But it's also to recognize that uh, uh, while there are often string prizes and often you see the string and keyboard uh, students getting the limelight. Um, that's every reason to also celebrate uh, the talented and deserving wind players in mm. Singapore. Any sort of parting words, especially you know your role as being involved in in the education or music education, to students who are working on their craft. They're working very hard. They're in school. Uh, any 
particular advice or tips that you think would be important for them to consider in order to have a, a sort of sustainable career post-graduation? Well, I, I would say that you know, someone like myself, and I probably would dare to say that there are other leaders in classical music who could have decided to take on the actual performing role instead of going into, in my case, engineering or in the case of the chairman of SSO in business. I mean, people like us chose deliberately to take on another profession, but always continued to enjoy and love music and where possible get involved in the music. Uh, in fact, it's rather interesting that he, chairman of SSO, was a reviewer in, S in Straits Times also, many years before I mm. became a reviewer. And uh, my path has some similarities, but I think we would like to see more young music lovers, whether they are professionals or people in different professions, uh, getting involved in the music scene, uh, whether it's in organizing, supporting, uh, eventually leading groups. I think it's important because otherwise uh, there may be a situation where we have lots of performers, but the ecosystem is not quite rich enough or well organized and supported to allow our artists to flourish. Mm. Yeah, certainly. I think uh, that we always run a risk with conservatory trained musician that we, we focus so much on the performance aspect and we kind of forget these other facets of uh, making this whole uh, music I would say business thing take right. We yeah, we often just focus on the craft and yeah. yeah. It, it's a business. It certainly is yeah. a business. It requires organization, but it's not a business in the bad sense of the word business. Yeah. Uh, it's an industry, and the industry mm. needs, in addition to the pro professionals who perform, uh, people who organize, who promote who lobby for, who speak out for the art. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think this is a good place for us to wrap this interview up. Uh, thank you so much, Mervin, for your very, very generous time. Oh, you're most welcome. And thank me. you for your very insightful questions. No worries. It's my absolute pleasure. And uh, thank you so much for the work that you do, the grounds that you're con continuously pushing. I think uh, we are all very grateful to be part of this, this wave that arts leader like yourself is creating. So uh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. So for all of you listening, thank you very much for staying with us throughout this episode. And most importantly, thank you for your attention. The most important commodity any of you have to give. It is very much appreciated. And with that, we will sign off on this episode of You Play A What. You have been listening to You Play A What, hosted by Vincent Tan. If you enjoyed this episode, please hit the subscribe button so that you'll be notified when a new episode is posted. Rate and review the podcast and share it with your friends if you feel so inclined. <laughs>
The theme music for the podcast is entitled Midnight Affairs and is composed by Algirdas Matonis and recorded by Vincent Tan. Thank you so much for listening to You Play or What? Until next time. Thank you.